Hey folks, Mike from the Battles of the First World War podcast. Returning to the Battles of the First World War podcast is Dr. Jeff Gusky, an emergency physician, artist, photographer for National Geographic, and explorer. I'm grateful that with the ongoing pandemic, Dr. Gusky is able to come on the show and share his latest work with us, which is part of the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture's We Return Fighting exhibit. Dr. Gusky is the photographer and talent behind the fascinating hidden world of World War I, an exploration of the many unknown underground cities inhabited by soldiers of both sides of the Western Front during the Great War. His photographs have been seen worldwide through National Geographic, Smithsonian Museum exhibitions, and featured in several newspaper and television articles worldwide. His work truly is remarkable and brings a world silent and in darkness for over a century back into the light. I urge you to follow his work if you haven't already done so. In this interview, we discuss Dr. Gusky's contribution to the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture's We Return Fighting exhibit, one of which is his discovery of the only remaining command post of the 370th Infantry under the old battlefields of France. The 370th Infantry Regiment was a segregated African American unit during World War I. However, it also had the distinction of being the only regiment also led by black American officers. The men of the 370th were called the Black Devils by the Germans due to their fierceness in combat. We also throw in a couple of ghost stories for good measure. In the course of the conversation, I make an error in the first time Jeff Gusky came on the podcast. It wasn't two years ago, but three. Just goes to show you how the years pass by without you knowing it sometimes. Links to Dr. Gusky's work will be in the episode notes, as well as on the website, firstworldwarpodcast.com. We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right. All right, folks. Um, this is Mike with Battles of the First World War podcast, and uh, I am here with Dr. Jeff Gusky, um, who you know from the hidden world of World War I, uh, who's formerly a guest uh, here on the BFWWP um, two years ago, I believe. Um, and we're very lucky. Uh, uh, Dr. Gusky is, um, not only is he a National Geographic photographer, um, writer, um, he's also an emergency room doctor who has been um, extraordinarily uh, busy with the current pandemic. Um, so we are uh, very lucky to have him here with us. And I want to begin... Uh, Dr. Gusky, just by um, telling you, thank you for the work you are doing um, on the front line of this pandemic. So I, I would thank you. Um, I'm grateful and, for your comments. And and um and thank thank you for for joining us um, again. Um, this is this is really really cool. Um, so uh, you have done some work with. Um, the National Museum of African American History and Culture's uh, "We Return Fighting" exhibit. Um, would you would you share with us a, a just a 
a little bit about yourself and, and your work with this, this particular exhibit. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me on again, Mike. And, and I want to thank you. And I know your audience um, probably uh, tells you this a lot, uh, how grateful we all are for the enormous amount of work that you have dedicated uh, to keeping World War I alive, to helping us understand it, to uh, bring it to life in a way that very few other people have. And uh, I, I, so I feel honored to be on with you. And, uh, and so uh, this, the connection to the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American History and Culture is in the current exhibit, which, <laughs> no offense to Oprah, but they took out Oprah's exhibit and put this exhibit in. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really honored uh, to be part of it. Uh, but uh, it's... Well, ho- hopefully Oprah does listen to this podcast. And, <laughs> and no, no offense at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway, hi, Oprah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I- so... The, the exhibit is up through September 6th, mm-hmm. so I hope people can see it. it it's a, a large exhibit, very well uh, organized and quite impressive in, in, its, in its size and scope. And, and so uh, I am fortunate to be part of two aspects of the exhibit. And so can I tell you about how this came about by accident? Oh my goodness. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So that's <laughs> always the way all the, you know, my, um, uh, I stumble into things, it, everything that, that I've been fortunate to, uh, experience as a, a national geographic photographer, explorer, and, and my work on world war one is, is always, um, associated with a degree of, of one thing leading to another, leading to another coincidence. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm on assignment for the Sunday New York Times to photograph a cover story for the Sunday travel section. And one of the uh, places they asked me to cover was the place where the Sergeant York story happened. Yep. Chatel Sherry. Yes. And so I'm down uh, in the woods photographing the spot where Sergeant York uh, captures the, the German soldiers. And, and I have a four wheel drive. And I get stuck in the World War One mud. Oh, World War One is, you know, 100 years before. Approximately mm-hmm. so, uh, the mud is still <laughs> still a problem in some places, it's, and so sure four-wheel drive is. I still have pictures of it. Is just totally incapacitated, and I have to walk back into the village, and I don't speak French, and so I find somebody uh, that speaks broken English. Who, ironically, I had met the day before, miles away. He's, he's a Dutch guy who lives in this village, and he's a member of a, a volunteer association that 
keeps a, a World War I German camp uh, intact and restored. And so it was just total coincidence to find yeah. Harry Rupert. And, and he helped find a friend of his who had a logging truck and they pulled me out. Oh, it was really. I weird. met Mr. Rupert. No way. Really? Yes, I did. I met him in 2018. Yes. Oh yes. I, yeah. All world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so cool. <laughs> so, so, um, Harry says to me in broken English, he said, you know, there's a place on the other side of the village, uh, which, uh, once housed American soldiers. And he said, the owner is kind of crazy, but if you get him on a good day, maybe he'll let us walk around. So and many stories of, about seeing things in France kind of begin with this. <laughs> but it's awesome. Yeah, it was. And I mean, it, it, you, these are this is the adventure of going to France where there's so many things, as you know, Mike, mm -hmm. still remain from World War One. So many traces. And, and, and it's alive and people feel it, you know, as you know, uh, they still live it. It's in their hearts. It's in their consciousness. Mm -hmm. and, and so this gentleman was not crazy at all. He was so kind and gracious, but his family owned this now closed Abbey since the French Revolution. Wow. And he was basically broke and embarrassed that the place was kind of falling in on itself. And he didn't want people to go inside mm -hmm. once beautiful uh, building. But anyway, his son was walking around the perimeter and, and the son uh, mentioned the wrong thing to me <laughs> with my kind of intrepid curiosity. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, you know, there's some inscriptions in the attic by Americans. And so uh, I was polite, but persistent and finally asked, you know, got him to ask his dad if we could go in. And his father said yes, begrudgingly. And so it was like the movie Ghost, you know, with the cobwebs and the squeaky stairs and the yeah. dust in the air. And you're going up one flight of stairs to another to another. You finally get up in the attic. And there are these inscriptions, two inscriptions by American soldiers. Wow. And, and a, a drawing of an eagle. So I, I do the photographs and then about a week later, I'm on a different part of the Western Front and um, was asked to do a radio interview by a Canadian station. Mm -hmm. and they wanted me on a landline. So I call a friend of mine. It's about eight at night uh, and he lets me come over to his house and at his dining room table, do the interview. And afterwards, in broken English, he looks at these photographs. He said, Jeff, I think that that soldier was from a black unit. And, and, it, and so uh, it turns out that the, uh, the, the inscription was from uh, a soldier in the 805th, which is a pioneer regiment. They weren't you know, a combat unit, but they were you know, a labor unit. Yep. Um, and they were domiciled in this closed abbey. Wow. And and I found a book, you know, which is it was written in 1919. You can see it online about the 805th. And I found the guy's picture. 
Wow. In the book, he was in the regimental band and you see him looking across time, looking back from a hundred years ago, this youthful face. Uh, he was from St. Joseph's, Missouri. And uh, so that began a quest to understand the story of this soldier. And I thought maybe it was, you know, the only remaining handwritten inscription by a black soldier from World War One. And indeed, it appears that's the case. So, wow. so in the pursuit of trying to understand what that was, and what that that inscription represented in terms of World War One history, I uh, kept seeing this name pop up named uh, Rob Robert uh, D'Alessandro. Okay. He wrote a yep. book. I'm sorry. No, no. I just said, yep, uh, um, Mr. D'Alessandro. Yeah. Colonel D'Alessandro. Colonel D'Alessandro. Mm-hmm. And who's be- now become a really dear friend. But um, anyway, at that time, uh, he was the chairman of the U.S. World War I Centennial Commission. You know, the Congressional Commission on World War I. Mm-hmm. And he was also the operational chief and the um, the deputy, uh, uh, what is his title? He's, he's the, basically, he runs the American Battle Monuments Commission. Wow. But he wrote a book called um, Willing Patriots, Men of Color in the First World War with uh, another, uh, with his co-author, uh, Colonel Jerry Torrance, who's also now a dear friend. And so he's a leading expert, along with Jerry, on African-American World War I soldiers. So through... Um, uh, through um, Chris, oh my God, um, I, I'm blanking. He's a friend. He's the PR person for the World War One uh, 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 not the commission, but the um, oh gosh, he's such a good, I'm blanking. Uh, anyway, sorry, Chris, don't Forgive it's me. Okay. It'll, um, it'll come. Isla, Chris, Chris Islip. Yeah. So okay. uh, he, he introduces me to Rob and Rob gets right back to me and he verifies that, yeah, I think you found the only trace of a, an African-American World War One inscription from from uh, the war. Wow. And, and I let a friend of mine in France know. And he gets right back. All this happens within one hour. And he says, hey, Jeff, there's a place that we've been photographing, you know, for several years beneath a farm field. And I think it may have housed an African-American combat unit because my friend Frank uh, uh, Viltart, who was in a World War One, uh, he's a government official involved with the Centennial and for the French government and Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and we're very good friends. He's, he was instrumental in everything that, that I've done on World War One. Without him, it would have been a whole different story. But yeah. anyway, Frank, said, Frank uh, tells me this, sends me a snapshot of, you know, of some carvings underground of this place that we've photographed repeatedly. In fact, I'd become friends with the farmer uh, that owns it. And and it turns out, I got back to Rob and he says, Jeff, you have stumbled onto the only trace of a World War I black combat unit that still exists. 
Wow. Uh, the, so Chatel Shiri is quite a ways from um, this place. Not mm -hmm. well, it's, it's it, they're, they're separated. They're, you know, it's, it's not terribly far, but they're not close. And, and, and so within, within an hour, I'd verified that I was fortunate to photograph the only in, remaining inscription of a black World War I soldier and separately the only trace of a black combat unit. So I go to the Smithsonian uh, uh, to the chief curator of the, uh, of the Smithsonian African American Museum, the, the Smithsonian National Museum of African American History and Culture before they opened the doors of the new museum. Uh, and I was fortunate mm -hmm. to get that meeting because at that time was very involved with the Air and Space Museum where there was an exhibit that featured my work called Artist Soldiers, an 18-month yes. exhibit, which was kind of the centerpiece of the Smithsonian's coverage of the 100-year anniversary. And, mm -hmm. uh, and so that connection helped me to get this meeting and they weren't taking meetings because the, the new museum uh, wasn't open yet, the new African-American museum, and yet they gave me a meeting. Why? Wow. Because little did I know they were working on the very story that would become the exhibit that's now up today. And here this, this guy is, you know, emailing them saying, hey, I found a trace of such and such unit. And it turns out, you know, that... Uh, it was really important to them. So, so halfway through the meeting with this wonderful leader and African-American scholar named Dr. Rex Ellis, who is just, a, you know, one of my heroes, he's no longer, he's retired from the Smithsonian, but, but he, okay. he's a preeminent scholar. He was, you know, he was the chief curator um, of the museum. And he says to me, Jeff, You've stumbled onto, I have a dream before I have a dream. Wow. And then he says it again. And Rob, wow. Rob and Jerry were in that meeting, Rob D'Alessandro and Jerry Torrance and, uh, and the curator of the, um, of this exhibit at the Smithsonian, uh, Karofsky Salter, who's now the director of the first division museum. Okay. Yep. Um, and he's also Colonel, Colonel Karofsky Salter. He's a good friend too. And, and so they hear Dr. Ellis say this and we were all floored. And so why did he say that? Yes. Why did he say that? It turns out that this wasn't just any black combat. This was the only all African American unit in the entire US military. And 102 years ago, when they fought so patriotically for our country, that unit had already been in existence for 49 years. Which, which is amazing because when we hear of the experience, we, um, the African American experience in World War I, so often nowadays we hear about the the Harlem Hellfighters, the 15th New York became the 369th Infantry. Um, you know, outstanding record in, in combat and everything. But but here we have this this other unit 
you know, that um, has its own story and, and an even longer backstory, you know? So amazing. Much longer. Yes. And, and in fact, it's the only story um, that uh, is, you know, of, of the, it's a, it's an entire new narrative on race. Um, and I think that, I know that sounds grandiose, but when the chief curator of the most important African-American museum in the world says, you know, this unit represents, I have a dream before I have a dream. That's yeah. saying something. So, yeah. so it, it, what it, what it means is that there, there is this, uh, this, this new narrative about race, you know, it's like, it's almost like these young men who left their mark underground. This was the underground command post of the 370th from Illinois. Yep. Are reaching across time, telling us that we got race wrong in America. And we have a second chance to get race right. And it, it has to do with the way they saw themselves. So you can see this. It's not my words. You can see it in the way they talk about their vision, their their dreams, the way they saw themselves as Americans. Yep. And and it's very evident in the in the several books that were written after they returned from the Spanish-American War. So th there were several books written in 1899. Okay. Um, and this unit was, can I just sidebar on that? Because it relates to COVID. Oh, absolutely. So they became the first ever all African-American unit to ever deploy in war. Why? Because they volunteered in the midst of a frightening infectious disease pandemic wow. in Cuba, where there was fear and panic in the air. People were dying in droves. American soldiers. Wow. The casualty rate was 10% war injuries, 90% from infectious disease. And wow. against that backdrop, they go to the governor of Illinois and say, please send us. It was called the experiment in color. Okay. Wow. And against the wishes of, of the McKinley White House, the governor federalizes this unit, which is a state uh, uh, unit, and, and makes them part of the Federal National Guard. And he promotes the the head of the unit, who is uh, a captain to colonel, he becomes the first colonel in the history of the US military, born a slave, the illegitimate grandson of the longest sitting US Supreme Court Chief Justice, even through today. Wow. His grandfather inaugurated Thomas Jefferson. Wow. And so he's leading this unit, which would become the Black Devils, the unit whose trace still exists right now as we speak underground beneath a working farm out in kind of the middle of nowhere in France. Mm -hmm. um, his, 
he leads this unit that that succeeds beyond everyone's expectations. It was called the experiment in color. And and the Illinois governor uh, does it anyway, because in Illinois, Abraham Lincoln's vision of America still mattered, even mm-hmm. though it's it's long after Lincoln was assassinated. And and so these patriots kick ass. You know, they they just exceed all expectations. The African American surgeons that ran the field hospitals understood infectious disease. Wow. And their hospitals were so clean that the infection rate plummeted. Countless lives were saved. The inspector general was so blown away. They they investigated, did a report. You know, there was just all kinds of firsts. The, uh-huh. the colonel that headed the unit became the governor of the province, which now contains Guantanamo Bay. Oh, wow. Wow. And, and, and the most important thing, I believe, is what these young patriots experienced in terms of how they saw themselves. Because Cuba then, as it is now, was a multiracial society, is a multiracial society. And yes. the general leading, leading the Cuban insurgency against Spain was General Maceo, a black general. So when they were in Cuba, people saw them not for the color of their skin, but the content of their character. Wow. And when you look at their writings in 1899, what do you see? That kind of language that would become known in the writings and the speeches of Dr. Martin Luther King years later, but Dr. King wouldn't be born for decades. Yes. And so these American patriots are seeing themselves not for the color of their skin, but the content of their character. They, they, they lived in a time where America didn't get them, but they got America. The, and, the, and, the promise of this country. Yeah, yeah, they didn't see. So, you know, they when they founded the unit that would become the Black Devils during World War One, it was in 1869. Mm-hmm. It was called the Hannibal Guard. It was an all volunteer black militia. It wasn't formed by the U.S. military or the government. They formed it as American patriots. And that unit became the centerpiece of of a dream they were they become became the torchbearers of lincoln's vision of american freedom for all of us and they lived it men and women and kids you know families supporting their their you know these american patriot husbands fathers in the unit generation to generation and they succeeded in every front of modern life whether it's medicine law banking publishing education the arts the military you know um, business everything 
and you have an unbroken continuity that with all of the problems that um, African Americans encountered where the, the hopes and dreams of, of the hundreds of thousands of Americans that died in the Civil War, you know, to rehumanize America, to end slavery, mm-hmm. they lived it and they never capitulated. They never gave in, they never gave up. And, and what you see in this unit and the reason why they were the only all African-American unit in the U.S. military is because they acquired political power. And that one of their own ran for uh, office representing the South side of Chicago and won the first time out and was a savvy politician, a college educated guy who understood media and understood power. And he Mm -hmm. became the head of the uh, appropriations committee in the uh, Illinois Illinois state um, house of representatives. And, and when a bill came up, would become known as the Buckner bill, he negotiated a provision where this unit would remain an all African American unit with all black officers and all black soldiers. And that was wow, certainly a first. Back then. Yeah, it was yeah. in 1894. Wow. Yeah. So that's why it remained an all black unit. It was because of political power. Wow. So it's just it's it's just an amazing story. And that the, the pictures, the photographs I took underground of their command post are in the show at the Smithsonian right now. Oh, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So, uh, Dr. Gusky, like st- stepping into that underground site, like you, you know, you're you're coming into contact with the traces of these men. Um, and th- these traces have sat in darkness for a hundred years. Um, uh, like, do, do you feel a, a human connection when, when you're there, like inches away in, in these places? Like, what, what is it like, like being there? Um, yeah. Like what, what, what's it like? Like just being here, being like, wow, I'm standing here probably in the same spot where this guy stood here scratching this and, you know, carving this into the wall a century before me, you know? It, I'm getting like goosebumps, almost electric feelings, you know, as you're asking the question. Um, because uh, uh, you feel as if a hundred years is only a day. Wow. You can run your fingers over the carvings chiseled into stone by young American patriots 102 years ago. Yeah. And, and they are patriotic. They are, you feel their love of country, their confidence, their, their outlook. You, you know, you see victory, victory on the walls. You see their unit, you see USA, you know, you see, you know, a love of country, a pride, a sense of, of how they saw themselves as Americans, they uh, they they were very clear. Uh, they were not victims. They were they were uh, visionaries. 
they got America when America didn't get them. And they, they led and they put their lives on the line for their country. They were stakeholders. This was their country. It wasn't, you know, that they were second class anything. That's not how they saw themselves. They yes. feel that way about themselves. You can see it in their writings and you feel it on the walls and, and it, you see artwork and you see, you know, um, uh, notes to loved ones and expressions of who they are as men. And, and it's, you know, when the world turns to a living hell on the surface, here you, you, you are witnessing a human world where they recreate underground cities beneath the former trenches and, and they, they, they pour their, their heart and soul out to you. You see it, you feel it. In fact, several years ago, I was back in that village or the village, not, you know, the closest village to this site. Mm -hmm. And I was um, invited uh, to be the guest uh, of the mayor and his wife, who are wonderful people for dinner. And I had, had some time. So I went back underground beneath this farm. And I don't mention the name of the farm because the, the farmers you know, are very private and you know, don't want their identity revealed. But yep, yep, uh, understood. But uh, there was a passageway that I hadn't explored before. It was filled with junk, you know, old farm, you know, tractor tires and, mm -hmm. and uh, all kinds of junk. And, and somebody had cleaned it out slightly, just enough that you could kind of make your way around, you know, all of the, uh, the objects in the darkness. And, yeah. and, and I go to the end of this, of this, um, this passageway and there is a, a room opening up underground and it turns out it was a chapel. Oh, wow. And there is right now, as we speak, there is a, a cross. It's kind of um, a, a primitive, you know, cross, but it's, it's beautifully carved. And on it is a carving of Christ on the cross. And so you know that soldiers from the 370th, from Chicago, worshipped there while the bombs were going off above. And it turns out the only memoir we have of the 370th was written by Captain William S. Braden, who was the unit chaplain, who was yes. a, uh, a pastor, I believe a Baptist pastor, if I'm not mistaken, from the south side of Chicago before wow. and after the war. Wow. I, I, um, I actually just bought that, that memoir. Um, but I, but I haven't, I haven't really looked at it, but I, I am going to be looking at it here soon, but my goodness, what amazing. So like you have this, this cross with, with Christ, you know, hanging on the, on, on the cross, um, crucified and, and this has been carved into stone. So you, you see like the, the, you know, like the, the little strokes that the artist, you know, like, uh, made and, and, um, 
oh my god like um like you, you must feel su- such a connection to the, to the artist as well like, like wow there's a man who who did this you know and 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 then like you said like thinking of other soldiers sitting in that underground chamber like you know worshiping that that cross like in like right where you're standing like I'm I'm actually starting to get goosebumps as well so <laughs> it's wow what what a powerful story what a powerful connection you know like wow it's as if they're speaking to us across a hundred years, you know, with a positive message about race and, and a positive vision of what America means. You know, it's totally imperfect. It always mm-hmm. was and it always will be. But, but the, um, these, these men were patriots. And, and there are many stories that we haven't heard about their success. In fact, one of them that I'd like to share with your audience, which is mm-hmm. largely unknown. And I, I think that um, uh, why it happened um, it is partly attributed to the French's uh, almost visceral disgust with the American military leadership um, uh, and their racist policies towards African-Americans at that time Mm -hmm. uh, because the French respected the um, soldiers of the 93rd Division, the four regiments that were loaned to them by General Pershing. Mm -hmm. And and so uh, it turns out that on the last day, the last hour, the last minute of World War I, the last Americans fighting were the Black Devils. Wow. The all African American unit, US military, led by the highest ranking black officer in the military, whose grandfather was a personal friend of Abraham Lincoln. Wow. And a pallbearer at his funeral. Wow. Wow. So when, when everyone else laid down their arms at 11-11, you know, on the, November 11th, mm-hmm. um, the Black Devils kept fighting. The French uh, wow. command allowed them to continue pursuing their objective, which was a retreating German convoy fleeing them. Now, the reason why they're called the Black Devils is that that's the name the Germans gave them because of their fierceness in combat. Wow. So they were relentless. They were courageous. They were, they were tough as nails. And they, they pursued this German convoy all the way back across the Belgium line. Wow. Captured it. And then they laid down their weapons. Wow. Wow. Dedication to mission. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. What an amazing story. It's, it's widely unknown, but it's, wow. it's, it's, it's documented. You know, you can look in their, uh, in the, uh, what do you call it? The order of battle. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you see it and yep. That's what happened. God, that's, that's amazing. I, um, 
coming out. It'll by the time this interview um, is released on the podcast, I'll <clears throat> excuse me, I'll have released um, my narrative episode of the the ninety third in combat. But but I've left out the three hundred seventieth for now because they they weren't fighting in the Champagne region. They right. um, the three seventieth was was in the Waz N region, right. and I and yeah. I do plan to to cover them. Um, with an episode of their own, but as of right now, like my my knowledge of them is, is is still pretty thin, and in fact, like it's it's doubled in the last thirty five minutes in this in this conversation here. So, like, just what an amazing unit! I can't, I can't wait to uh, to dive into them. And um, you know, they did have a little bit of involvement in the uh, in the, the Champagne area or on the border of the Champagne area. Oh. Um, but I mean, it was just brief. They were kind of passing through, but I think they, their first, um, they, their first prisoner of war, uh, was captured by the Germans at, um, Dutte de Vaquois. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and then they continued on to, you know, unlike the three, 69th, 371st, and 372nd that stayed, as you know, that stayed in the Champagne. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Um, and, oh, sorry, and, and the, the Butte de um, um, there's, there's another um, hellish area. <clears throat> oh, that's an understatement. Yeah. <laughs> yes, sure. It most certainly is. Yeah. It was... Yeah. I remember, can I just tell you, there's still something that, that it's almost like a ghost story. So, you want to hear a really quick glimpse of something that's still, I can't explain it. I've never told yes. anybody publicly. Oh, well, thank you for, for sharing. You want here. To hear, it's just a little sidebar. It's not related to the black soldiers, but it's weird. Mm-hmm. It's eerie. So, um, you, the, um, as you know, there, there were seven, uh, kilometers of tunnels, uh, on the French side and 17 on the German side of Dutrecourt and it, yes, you know, they, uh, they, neither side prevailed until the Americans came in, in, I think September of 1918, mm-hmm. they, were, they just kept blowing each other to smithereens and creating these, these huge monstrous, uh, mine, you know, mine cavities in what was once a hilltop. Yes. And so, uh, I, became really good friends with uh, leaders in the association that uh, that manages Vauquois mm-hmm. and had the privilege of going deep underground to places that that nobody gets to go they're a little dangerous in fact wow and uh, and a little you know eerie but anyway uh, I was photographing um, this place where you still find like live hand grenades and you know, munitions and all this other, you know, shoes and battle, you know, just stuff from a hundred years ago, lying like it was left pots and pans. And, and, and this is weird. It, it, um, so, uh, I, I was doing like a still life of, a of a pot, uh, that was in a puddle on the ground. Mm-hmm on a tripod my camera was totally still and and so from one frame to the next the, 
the it moved. I'm not kidding. Not a lot, but it moved. You can see it in in the you know the camera captured movement in the handle. Um, wow. Yeah, I, I I can't explain it. I didn't, you know. But there, you still find things in these. I mean, there at times you find bones underground. Wow. You know, you find. I mean, there are things that you just can't believe. Um. Uh. So. Um. Yeah, it's wow. Anyway, that's beauty of Aqua is kind of haunting when you go deep underground. Yeah, the 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 hairs on my my forearms are like standing up straight with <laughs> with he hearing that really? story. Really? Yes. Yeah. Wow. Like that's, I, I don't, I don't doubt it at all. I've I've been in those tunnels, but I, I'm not just the ones that you can take on the tour publicly. Um, yeah. And and that's pretty pretty wild in um in itself. But like just to 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 be that that deep, like wow, that's that's amazing. It was pretty deep underground. Thank, thank you so much for, for sharing that story. And, and, and there, there are others that I've heard over the years. Um, yeah, it's, there's definitely like a, almost like an energy left um, in, in those places. Some places, yeah. You, you know, when, when um, you remember the photograph at the end, I know you went to see Artist Soldiers at the entry. Yeah. It's on the, uh, on the homepage of my website. Uh, of this uh, series of trenches at Massage at night, which is mm -hmm. not far from where the African-Americans uh, fought so heroically in the Champagne. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we photographed that on a June night in 2016. Some friends from Texas came over actually to help me. One of my best friends sent his kids over, or one of his sons and his college buddy and his ex-wife <laughs> wow. anyway, so she wasn't supposed <laughs> to be there but she found a way to to join us and so you know we anyway it was really eerie because it took hours to create that and it was in the middle of the night and and you would hear things on the battlefield that you couldn't understand it was a bit spooky wow. sometimes yeah um, i bet wow anyway. wow i i um my own story, like we're rather off topic, but it's, um, I, I remember the first time I visited um, Verdun, I was, um, it was 2001. It was when I was um, still in the army over in Germany. And um, uh, we were at the, the big, the large French cemetery in front of the ossuary of, of Douaumont. And yeah. um, I just remember it was, it was a June day like a cloudless, you know, summer day, you know, lovely weather. And um, I remember I, I said to my friends, I was like, like, there's not a bird in the sky around here. Like it was very, very quiet. And, um, and just had this sense of like eyes, eyes on us, you know? And um, so it was, it was a really eerie feeling, you know, um, I kind of felt, felt watched. <laughs> like, you know, you know so. people ask ask me uh, what does it feel like to be underground yes and and um and i have to tell you that that it's very peaceful there's only one place that i ever encountered where there was this really uh kind of haunting feeling and the friend of mine who, one of my very dearest friends who is kind of the um uh, 
he's the head of the association that manages this American site underground. Um, he said that it's been that way in this one spot for, of this system for over 20 years, it's hundred acres underground. And, uh, uh, it, it's very peaceful except for this one place. And it turns out, and it's not, it's kind of off the, you know, you have to kind of go through this treacherous roof collapse, uh, over wow. rock edges and it's, it's tough, but there are bones they, the association doesn't want to, um, go through all the process of, you know, cause you have to do a murder investigation and right. you know, technically. And so they, I'm not going to name names or say where it is, but yep. there are human bones that are there right now. Wow. German, a German soldier and there are parts of the uniform and the boots and the, and, and as a doctor, you know, I, I know these bones cause you, you know, they're, you know, you see them on x-rays all the time and yeah. you know from you know, studying anatomy and it's, it is really haunting. It is really, really eerie in that place and uh, and kind of dark and we were there one night my friend frank and and my th this other friend who oversees this place and uh um and uh and my camera quit working the electronics just wow. quit yeah i had to do the the whole thing on manual it was totally unexplained and when i got back to the place i was staying that night everything worked fine it was oh, weird, yeah. you know. I who I mean, I'm not trying to do ghost stories, but it's no, it's just, no. There, are, there are these unexplained things that happen, and that that's a memory. It, but it was really, you know, it was almost like the darkness. You want to, um, you want to watch where you step because you almost feel like if you're distracted, like something you could get injured, you could get hurt. There was something. There was a, an overwhelming. Uh, almost a sense of evil in the air and right around the, well, not far from there is, is the only place I know of where you see traces of underground combat. Wow. There, and I took, I took Rob D'Alessandro there. Mm -hmm. you know, he's an expert. He's, you know, battlefield archeologist and no, he said, yeah, I thought it was a hand grenade that went off. He said, no, Jeff, this is, you know, heavy machine gun fire all wow. over the walls, you know, just bullet holes in the walls. Shrapnel. Wow. You know, I mean, it, it's, it was intense. And it was a communication center, German. Um, it's like a hub. You know, you still see the wires coming in from all over this underground system in this place. So anyway. Wow. Wow. God, I'm... I'm it's amazing. Wow. What, what amazing stories. Like, wow. And then, um, to, to go, um, to go back to, to the, the, the black devils, um, living in this, in this kind of environment and the, their combat posts, um, probably did not see underground combat, but, but the ground above it certainly did. Um, and just to be like, to have to live for months and years in this, um, completely dehumanized uh, in, environment of, of um, industrial warfare, you know, and um, like like you were saying earlier, like you go underground and and you you 
rehumanize the world around you, even if it's just that underground chamber, you know, by, by leaving a mark of yourself, you know, and, and a, a symbol of, of what you love, you know, like your, your, your country in this, which is why you're there. So just, Do you just hear a, a funny story. Yes. And people, your listeners can go on my YouTube channel, Jeff Gusky, and see if they go to the, there is a, a clip of uh, ABC power players. Okay. It was an interview that took place at ABC headquarters in New York um, in 2014, I think. And, uh, and so this is before I realized that this place was the underground command post of the Black Devils. And mm-hmm. so there is a, and this is the only place I know of that, that's like this. You know how um, uh, with old fire stations, they had like a chute from the upstairs to the downstairs, you know, spin you around, you know, that you, where you'd go in on your rear end. Yep. Slide down into the, you know, to the ground floor where the fire trucks were. Mm-hmm. So this is like a chute from the, surface of the earth down into the underground command post oh man wow and i'm sure it existed before the black devils were there because this site you know was older they, they were there for about a month three weeks a month something like that in the in, in september of 18. but um when you so you slide they would slide in on the rear end and just as they pop in to the safety of this underground command post, you look up and you see hell come in, not welcome in, <laughs> but hell come in. <laughs> and you can see that photograph on the uh, on that piece on the YouTube channel. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! That's that's awesome. Yeah. Oh, we would definitely get a. Um... I will find it and I'll, I'll uh, link to it um, in the in the episode notes. Wow! Oh my god, that's so cool to see. Like, just also an, another very human thing. Like, still retaining your humor despite the the, the terrible situation you're in. Yeah, um, it's amazing. So, um, this is just so the story of the three hundred seventieth, the the experiment in color, the the black devils, the the fact that they were the I have a dream before I have a dream. Um, these were soldiers living um, that that American ideal. And, and I love this idea that you keep coming back to. Like, this is how they saw themselves. Like, they didn't, they were Americans. And, and, and that were... was infectious, too. It, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, no, no. Please, go 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 right ahead. Well, it, it, it's that, that because of the success story that comes out of this community um, that are the torchbearers of American, you know, of the, of Lincoln's vision of freedom for all of us. Um, and, and the fact that a publishing empire was created in Chicago in 1905 that distributed this vision of how they saw themselves, this vision of, 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 uh, of African-American prosperity and freedom and possibilities all over the country. It went all the way to the deep South. And I, I believe that this 
had to have an impact on another unit that is featured. Can I just tell this story about? Yes, please. Okay. Um, in the Smithsonian show, which is the 371st, which did fight in the Champagne. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so you find a story that, and it's another unknown story that I stumble onto by accident that is just so emotional, especially today with all of the strife and tensions and and the uh, confusion about what it means to be an American. Mm -hmm. and, and through this story, we all can be inspired by African-American heroes that show us what it means to be an American. So it's, it's 2017. We just finished the, the documentary uh, called um, Americans Underground Secret City of World War One on the Smithsonian Channel. Mm -hmm. and, it, and it it had actually we, it was it was finished before, but it had just aired and the Smithsonian Channel was really happy with it. And the, uh, the viewership was exceeding their expectations because in the past, you know, it seems like their programs on World War One didn't do so well. So they were happy and they were interested in more so I, I went over to France on a quick scouting trip. Um, I, I would go back and forth a lot. You know, I was practically living there. And at that time, actually, I was uh, dating uh, someone, a, a woman who is still, she's at the embassy in France. She has dual citizenship and uh, mm -hmm. was born in Phoenix and um, uh, wonderful person but anyway so my heart was in France as well mm -hmm. so um, so it was a scouting trip to to figure out where the first african-american recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor for World War one or World War two died because we, we know his name is his name is Freddie Stowers mm -hmm. and he received the medal in 1990 during the uh, uh, first President Bush's uh, administration when his paperwork supposedly resurfaced after all those years and it never had been acted upon and when you know they put it through the rigorous Medal of Honor process he uh, Stowers had been nominated in in uh, on December 28th 1918 but then the paperwork went missing. And, and so the fact that it hadn't been acted upon, they could, they could put it through. And it, he got the medal with flying colors. It passed through because of his um, authenticated heroism during World War I. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but no one knew where he died. It wasn't marked. You know, there, his grave is in France. Uh, yep. Uh, but where did he die so anyway I, I kind of got curious and and I knew through my friend Rob D'Alessandro and Jerry Torrance that one of their colleagues who is the chief historian for the American Battle Monument Commission named Mike Knapp um, who's a wonderful guy Mike uh, was 
on the team that found the Stowers paperwork at the National Archives in the late 80s. Wow, isn't that something? And wow. Rob told me, this is another coincidence, I just went over to say hi, you know, I was in DC for some other reason. So I, I went to, to just visit, you know, at the American Battle Monuments Commission. And they, I think we had a, like a 15 minute meeting in between their meetings. And, and Rob said, Oh, you know, uh, Knapp has the whole file on his computer. Mike was on vacation anyway. So I called him before going back on the scouting trip and said, Mike, you know, I, I think there may have been other African-American heroes who were nominated for the Medal of Honor, but denied because of the extreme racism during World War I mm -hmm. uh, amongst American soldiers, amongst the leadership and, and the Wilson administration. So he, he pulls up the file on his computer uh, he says, I'll call you back and uh, let me look into this. And so he calls back about an hour later. He says, Jeff, you're right. There was a second hero who died in the same fight, Company C, 371st Regiment, in that same ambush where Stowers died. Wow. And he was also nominated for the Medal of Honor. And his name was Private Burton Holmes. And his paperwork wasn't lost. It was denied by Pershing. And it turns wow. out that this is really important because it turns out that as far as anyone I've spoken to knows, it's the only example in American history since 1776 through today where two black heroes both die in the same battle, both nominated for the Medal of Honor. Wow. And wow. I believe it was covered up because what would have happened to the myth of Jim Crow if the story got out that two black heroes had been nominated for the Medal of Honor? Right, right it would have made Jim Crow look silly. Exactly, exactly. And, and when you look at the original paperwork, which thanks to Mike, I have, which is very hard to come by. It, it, you know, I sent a researcher to the National Archives and it's really tough to find all these documents mm -hmm. that, um, that I've been fortunate to get from Mike. But when you look at the paperwork, what you see is a story that I mean, Stowers was definitely a hero, but he was not coming back. He was mortally wounded in this deadly ambush where our, our American soldiers were lured into what was called the comrade trap. They, the Germans waved white flags and they, they set the, you know, this unit up believing they were ready to surrender. And then when our soldiers came out of their trenches, moving towards the German soldiers to take them prisoner of war. You know, they could have been gruesome and brutal and, and violated the Geneva Convention, I, I guess it was around then, but done the wrong thing and, and mm -hmm. just murdered them when they were standing with white flags, but they didn't. They went to go take them prisoner of war. So yep. the Germans 
uh, as if on signal, they jump back into their trenches and then bam, there is inflating machine gun fire, mortar fire. Within, I believe a minute, half the unit was down. Wow. Wounded, dead. And Stowers was badly wounded. He was not coming back, but he kept fighting and led his men to take out uh, a machine gun nest. It was Corporal Freddie Stowers. Well, Burton Home story is even more inspired. He's more, it's more like unbelievable than, than uh, Freddie Stowers because Holmes makes a choice. He is badly wounded. His weapon jams. He comes back through the hail of machine gun fire and shelling to the safety of the command post where he could have been treated and lived. Yep. He gets a fresh weapon, refuses treatment, goes back through the machine gun fire and shelling to the front line where he fights until he dies. He makes a choice that's deeper than race or class or education or material wealth that unites us all as Americans. He is a stakeholder. This is his country. And he chooses to die for what he believes in. And, and that is what it means to be an American in my view. Yeah. Yeah. He should, he should also receive the medal of honor. And I hope as it's one of my, um, my goals to get a movie made of this story and to, cause I've, I've since found the exact spot where this happened. Oh, that's and, wonderful. Yeah. And, uh, as you know, Mike, um, the, uh, so this is Hill 188 and there's a monument that is located about a kilometer from Hill 188 mm-hmm. is, uh, uh, and this site is unmarked. It's sacred ground for America. You know, the only place where you have two African-American heroes, both nominated for the Medal of Honor. And it should be marked, and it isn't. It's just, but but, um, anyway, so a kilometer from there, I I found the place when I found old maps, original maps with the trench lines and the roads, and they're all the same right now as Mm -hmm. they were in 1980. Yeah. So, yeah, very little has changed. <laughs> so this this monument, you know the story. Can I just tell the story of the monument really quick? Yes, of course. So the monument is one of the most important World War One monuments, that I believe, that exists today. And it sits in the mud in a plowed, you know, a farm field on a hilltop, unmarked exactly where it was placed just after the end of the war. Wow. It was paid for by the voluntary contributions of this unit who were cotton pickers from South Carolina. It was an all black, they were all black soldiers, all white officers. As mm-hmm. opposed to the Black Devils, which was all black soldiers, all black officers. 
until yep. mid, mid July, and then their commanding officer was replaced with a white colonel. And then two weeks before the end of the war, there were the brother of, of that colonel and another guy were put in. But but they the Black Devils retained their command structure mm -hmm. for all intents and purposes through the end of the war. But anyway, the, this unit uh, of black cotton pickers donated a dollar a man to have that monument fabricated in Paris, and it sits where it was placed 102 years ago. Wow. And, and it's still unmarked. And it's so emotional because on that monument are the names of the two African-American Medal of Honor nominees. Wow. Along with other members of that unit that were killed. Wow. It's Amazing. really, it's so emotional once you realize what it represents, but then there's, it gets better because, um, uh, I don't know, not too long after I, um, put, you know, this together and, and found that, you know, the, with my, the help of my friend, Mike Knapp, uh, the, uh, this amazing unknown story. Um, I go to a library and find a book written in 1928 that hadn't been checked out in a while. <laughs> wow. And it's the memoir of that unit written by a white captain. Oh. And in the back of the book, you learn that they also contributed 75 cents a man to have a medallion minted. And that medallion tells us everything we need to know about how they saw themselves as men and as Americans. And I've sent you pictures of that medallion for your audience to see. Yes. And, and I've, I've since found five of them. There were 2000 or so minted in 1918. Wow. The soldiers, these black cotton pickers contributed 75 cents a man to the uh, minting of this medallion and, and on the medallion, which one of which is, is in the Smithsonian show right now. And I've donated it to the permanent collection of the museum, um, is, uh, is this, um, uh, is this picture. So in the middle of the medallion, you see a man and a woman hunched over in the hot South Carolina sun, picking cotton in small scale. So this yes. is about family. It's about the life they left behind. And next to them is the palmetto tree, the symbol of South Carolina. And under the palmetto tree is a sharecropper's log cabin. And then at the top of the medallion in much larger scale is a proud forward-leaning African-American soldier in uniform leading a bayonet charge. That's the future. Yeah. And then the words underneath in Latin, how sweet and noble it is to die for our country. Our country. Yeah. yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. Really? Like, um, what an amazing, like, uh, that that coin, yeah, right there, telling the story, just like you, just like you said, family, home, the future, but also 
like a, how they a, see themselves. Yeah, and and a and a deep deep love of country to the point where they they are ready to die for their it. They're stakeholders. Well. It's their country. Yeah. And this yeah. is a time when when all that these soldiers have to look forward to when they go back home is the Klan, Jim Crow, lynching, no social safety net, no yep. civil rights laws, no veterans benefits, no education, no health care, nothing. Yep. But it's their country and they die for it and they love it. And, and, and that is that's what it means. It's just yeah. you know, it, that's what it, that's what gets us through the hard times. They were not victims. They were visionaries. They show us all what it means to be an American. It's unselfish. America is imperfect, totally imperfect. It always was. It always will be. They were visionaries. Yep. And they, and they, you know, they also hold this country like to, to the ideals and to the promise. And, That's and, right. um, and it's, wow. What just, what a, what a wonderful message. What a, what a wonderful way to wrap up this wonderful conversation. And, Thank and, you. uh, Thank you, and Mike. Ended, ended on a, on a hopeful note here, you know, like we live in some pretty heavy times right now, um, you know, with the pandemic and everything and, and, you know, to, to, to veer off the today's news and talk about world war one is usually not that much more uplifting, but, but wow, what a wonderful way. Like, what a, like, you. um, thank you so much, Dr. Gussie for, for coming on, um, and sharing like this ultimately, um, this ultimately hopeful message of, of America and its promise and, um, and, and how, and how these soldiers saw themselves a hundred years ago and how we can still feel their, their, their presence today, like in, and, um, and the, the, the work, the, the foundation stones that they laid for, for, for future progress. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for taking time. What you do, it's inspiring. And everyone that, that has the good fortune of hearing your podcast Oh, thank knows you. Knows how lucky we all are that that you um, that you give this gift to us. Thank you. Mike. Oh, thank you so much. And I have to say, um, once this um, pandemic has settled down, if uh, if you are ever in the Boston area, um, <laughs> definitely you're dinner, on dinner. Dinner is a must, sir. So this is so cool. Um, thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you so much for coming on. And, um, yeah. And, and I, I look forward to, to your future projects. Um, and I look forward to, to, to seeing your, your continued work coming, thank coming you. up. Thank you. All the best. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. okay. Thank you.